Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Even if AI can't give us the right answer, sometimes it can help us to ask the right questions. And as it turns out, that's a lot more important than you might think. Today, we sit down with Kota Kubo, the co-founder of Yubi, an AI-based symptom checker and hospital check-in tool that is being used at over a thousand hospitals and clinics across Japan. And as you'll see, in this case, the questions the AI raises are more important than those it answers. And since Yubi just raised $27 million to fund their U.S. market entry, you'll be hearing a lot more about them soon. We also talk about how Yubi manages 200 staff with no managers, why it's so hard to sell to doctors and, and how to do it right, how to bring attention to orphan diseases, and why you really need to ignore your customer's idea about UI and listen to your users. But you know, Kota tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. Cheers. Cheers. So we're sitting here with Kota Kubo of Yubi, who's disrupting digital health here in Japan. So thanks so much for sitting down with me. Health tech is so important in Japan. And um, so you've got two different products you offer. Yes. So let, let's do just a real quick introduction to what those products are, and then we'll dive deep. Yes, we have the two sides of the product. First is for the patient product. It's our AI symptom checker, UB, and the users input their symptoms, like a headache or stomachache or something so. Uh, AI asks some of the sort of questions. And after that, AI uh, suggests a disease name so their users can get to know their symptom condition and their disease. And after that, we also suggest the clinics or hospitals. Okay. <laughs> you know, one thing I'm curious about that, because I've used it, it's really interesting. But so like some sites like WebMD, for example, mm -hmm. they, they have a really famous problem where someone will go on with like, I don't know, a runny nose, mm -hmm. and they'll start searching and asking questions and... and 10 minutes later, they're convinced they have like rabies or some brain-eating parasite or, or some horrible disease. How do you stop that kind of unhealthy interaction at, at UB? Yeah, it's very <laughs> difficult, <laughs> I think. So our end point of the suggestion is guide people to the appropriate clinics and hospitals. And uh, we suggest a specialist related to their symptom. So I think their users feel they're safe. So, and again, you're really focusing on providing information, not diagnosing anything. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a very important point. <laughs> and, and your other product is the Monshin, the uh, check-in functionality, right? Yes, exactly. So the second product is UB AI Health Assistant. Uh, it's uh, called AI Monshin in Japan. The objective is to uh, reduce the burden of the medical doctors. We save the time of their uh, making the clinical record. 
because our AI also asks a lot of questions to the about symptoms and the AI summarizes the medical record. Okay, this is really cool. So let's let's take time to walk through the process. So if someone's got an appointment at the hospital or at a clinic, they can check in and, and fill out the symptom forms at home on a mobile phone, right? Yes. And where does the AI come in? Ah, there are a lot of questions from the AI, and the AI is change the question according to the patient's answer. So AI selects the question and also calculates their disease probabilities. So what the AI is doing is it's, it's figuring out the kinds of follow-up questions a doctor would ask. Mm, yes. And getting this information together and presenting it to the doctor all at once. Yes, yes. Okay. So again, not diagnosing, but just getting the information together. Yes, yes. Awesome. So tell me about your customers. Who's using UB and Wonshin? First is the medical doctors. Before using the UB, they have to make their medical record by themselves from scratch. But we support them to make the medical record. Before the real face-to-face medical consultation with their patient, also we suggest disease to the medical doctors. It prevents their doctors from overlooking the serious disease. Mm. So UB is in use in all 47 prefectures. Mm-hmm. And 15% of all clinics and hospitals in Japan are using it now? Yes, around 15%. That's the product that they use is not a UB Monsin. It's a UB link. It's a connection between the B2C and the B2B app. And uh, in terms of the UB Health Assistant, we have just installed the 1,000 clinics and hospitals. That's fantastic. Okay, I, w- I want to dive deep into the, the product and the market, but before we do that, let's back up a little bit and talk about sort of how you got here. So you officially founded UB back in 2017, right? Yes. And you at that time, you were still a student. Uh, no. Before starting UB, I worked for Japanese digital health company. I worked as a marketing engineer. Basically, I did the light code, production code, and also the do the marketing-related things. But that was relatively briefly, right? Yes, and uh, including the internship, just uh, three years. And your co-founder, Abe-san, he was also at University of Tokyo, but you guys were like high school Classmates or friends or something, right? Yes. (laughs) How did that happen? What's did you reconnect at university or did you stay friends the whole time? Ah, yes. He was my friend and from their high school, as we mentioned, we are friends of their just starting together. So for the Jukan, yeah, (laughs) and uh, we split when I entered the university. And my bachelor's degree was in Kyoto University, but he entered the University of Tokyo. And from the graduate school, I moved to the University of Tokyo. And yeah. It reconnected. <laughs> yeah, reconnected. And actually, when I was in Kyoto University, there was angel investors who left McKinsey and the company. 
and uh, his mission is to increase the number of students who want to uh, become an entrepreneur. That's yeah. my mission too. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds nice. So yeah. so yeah, I got interested in their such entrepreneurship and also their starting business. So Abe-san's a, I mean, he's a medical doctor. Yes. Did you pitch the idea to him or did you come up with it together? Uh, yes. In 2012, I come up with the idea of diagnosis. I researched about such domains, and I also uh, uh, developed a beta version. I kept one year, and after that, I understood I lacked the knowledge of such a medical domain. So I have to consult, and consult with him. So I pitched. You pitched him. <laughs> pitched him, and he said, you can make it. So you were actually working on this from 2012? Yeah. So you were developing it for like five years mm. before you started UB. Uh, yes, yes. Wow. But the beginning phase is just for the research. It's interesting. So you and Abe-san are co-CEOs. Uh, yes. Now, this is something that's actually pretty common in Japan, but pretty rare in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Does that ever cause problems? How, how does that work on the personal day-to-day, -day, we've got to make these decisions under high-stress situation? Mm. Yes, uh, it's a very good question. Yeah, sometimes I feel it's uh, confusing for the employees too. <laughs> so who is their final decision maker? They don't know, yeah. But there, I think the good point is we can avoid the risk. And there is a rule of, uh, between me and my co-founder. If there is a inevitable conflict between us, after discussion, we can make the uh, same decision. I like yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's a very culturally different approach. Having 50-50 forces you to reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. I've always said in, in the, the deals I've done, like, I'm perfectly happy with 49% or 51%, but I never want 50 because <laughs> I don't like the ambiguity, but it, it is interesting because it does force you to sit down and get aligned. Mm, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, some of the VC investors, yeah, our advice does don't preach a 50 and 50 <laughs> to Give someone 51. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's our antipathy. Oh, I mean, it, it's... It's different. I mean, it, it's what it would look like. What I would imagine would happen is it would definitely slow down decision making. But maybe those are the cases where it's good to slow down a bit and, and build a consensus. Mm. Yes. And uh, we have also installed the framework of the culture structuring. It's a holacracy. It's a kind of tier organization. Do you know tier organization? I do. And... I had a note to talk about this later, but let's talk about it now. <laughs> I think the way you've structured your organization is super interesting. It, it is <laughs> flat to the extreme because it really is unusual and unique and very UB. <laughs> <laughs> yes. More confusing, but our companies are five organizations. One of their organizations adopted bureaucracy, framework of their deal organization. And in that framework, those are the very clear role and responsibilities. 
So it's a framework for the delegation from the uh, CEOs. So we can delegate some of the roles of CEO to each uh, members. And to, to be clear, I mean, Yubi is no longer a small company. Yes. In fact, in an interview I was reading of you guys last week, it was saying, at Yubi we have no managers in an organization of 200 members. Mm-hmm. And I made a note under that saying, what? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah, it's right there. How, how does that work in practice? I mean, that's, that's pretty flat. To be honest, with three organizations, as I mentioned, we have the five, and two organizations have such a hierarchical structure, so there is a manager, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, who is a true horocracy organization. So there is uh, no manager, but there is a hierarchy, but it's just a relationship between the lower hierarchy there. There is a lead, it's like a manager, but these don't have the accountability of the people management. Oh, I see. Okay, but for example, among the developers, are there traditional, uh, this is a six-person team with one lead managing the team, or is it flatter than that? Yeah, there is a lot of the product manager or product owner, and product owner's accountability includes the prioritization of the backlog. However, there is no titles and positions. Oh, okay, I see. So, So you've separated the functional roles from the management hierarchy. Yes, yes. So some people have responsibilities for the team and they make decisions for the team. Yes. But they don't necessarily supervise or control that team. Yes, yes. That's very interesting. We'll definitely put some links up on the website about that because I know a lot of people are going to want more information about it. (laughs) But what you're doing is definitely working. You just raised a little over $27 million. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, As always, when you raise that much money, now comes the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's dive a little bit deeper into the the product and the business. Mm -hmm. So you always describe UB as physician-supervised symptom checking. So what does that mean in practice, physician-supervised? Our product is uh, AI and uh, rule-based, and we use the uh, probability between symptom and disease. Like if a person has their influenza, the probability of having the fever is more than 95%. We use uh, such a probability value for that, and uh, also AI. Uh, ask uh, some of those questions and after that suggest a disease to the, each users and uh, including the medical doctors. And the medical doctor check up suggestion is uh, correct or sometimes not correct. Okay. And that provides additional feedback and training. Yes, yes. Awesome. One of the accountabilities of the doctors to generate uh, such a data. That makes sense. And also at one point you had to redesign your entire UI to make it more friendly for elderly users. Yes, yeah. To tell me about that process, because it was really interesting. Yes, so for our first, we provide their tablet interface for elderly people. Sometimes uh, they don't have their own smartphone. So at that time, patient has to input their symptoms. At first, we use the iPad's default keyboard. 
but it's a very uh, difficult for the pension or elderly people to input. And we converted it to our own keyboard right card, ATM. ATM is a, a bank account ATM. But you actually went out, you, you took these tablets out to Hibiya Park? Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, just test whether it can be available for the elderly people to use. <laughs> so you're just walking up to, to elderly people who are sitting on benches and yes, saying, yes. can you input your symptoms here? Yes. Did, how did they react? Reaction is we could see that it's available for the elderly people. Oh. Yeah. First feedback before testing that, we heard from the medical staff it's impossible to use for the uh, elderly people. Actually, the first version of our product, the symptom selection phase, we display their human body and uh, they have to drill down. But uh, we felt it's not like a Google style, it's uh, like a Yahoo style, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> previous Yahoo directory style. Uh -huh. Not a search style, but we thought it's better to search uh, even for the elderly people. It's better UX for them to search with the keyword. So we tested in their park. And, and was that the case? They preferred the keywords? Yes, yeah. We searched about uh, such a karaoke interface. It's uh, like a ATM UI. Elderly people use their such a karaoke. Oh, right. So modeling it after the old karaoke machines. Yes, yes, karaoke machines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. You know, use what your customers know. Yeah, yeah. Oh. They used to that. No, see, I love that because if you could have interviewed doctors and nurses and hospital administrators. And they would never tell you that. They would tell you something completely different mm -hmm, yeah. than going out and talking to people in the park. Yes, yes. So what is your billing model? I mean, it's a SaaS product, but do you bill by the number of appointments? Do you bill by the size of the clinic? Our business model of SaaS is related to the number of their medical rooms. So it's a fixed monthly cost based on the basically the size and capacity of the clinic. Yes, yes. And what's your go-to-market? How do you acquire customers? Selling to doctors is notoriously difficult. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was very hard. Actually, before UB's penetration, it's very difficult to introduce uh, such a cloud-based service into the hospitals. It was very hard because their healthcare systems are on-premise services. So their cloud-based services be understood as are very dangerous, not secure. Is that just the perception or are there some like regulations that require? There is a guideline of the healthcare information system. On-premise are recommended, but we have to keep aligned with such a guideline. So we partnered with the NTT and made closed our secure connection like a VPN. Yeah, after that, we can penetrate. Actually, our marketing channel in the beginning that worked well was just a, a writing a real letter by uh, my co-founders. He's a medical doctor and uh, sent it to the manager of the big hospitals. Sending it by post. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> That's other people did such operation. Yeah, yeah. It worked well. The good point of our marketing was also uh, government procedure innovation of this, how to work, we can get uh, such a good trend. They want to uh, renovate how to work because medical doctors work uh, too much. So it sounds like the key 
selling point was that Abe-san, the medical doctor, was reaching out to other MDs mm -hmm. saying, this is trustworthy, it'll save you time. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think you have to do that. <laughs> it's just the only way to get through to doctors is to have other doctor. They just won't listen to anyone else. <laughs> Actually, one of the things I've heard you and Abe-san as well talk about is one of your objectives is to better support and treat orphan diseases. Mm -hmm. It's related to another side of the business, some of the clients of the pharmaceutical companies. In terms of the uh, orphan disease, the disease are very difficult to diagnose for the medical doctors who are not specialized for such disease. So the problem for the pharmaceutical companies is if there is a patient of the orphan disease and the rare disease, Sometimes doctors overlook this, but we input a lot of type of disease information so we can suggest the possibility of the orphan disease to the patient and also provide information of the specialist clinic. So ideally, even if it's an orphan disease, there might be a lot of people who are undiagnosed. And so Yubi can help draw attention to the possibility that they might have this disease it could raise awareness among the doctors mm -hmm. that, oh, this person, it's worth looking into. And then the market might be big enough for the pharmaceutical companies to invest in treatment or cures. Mm -hmm. right. Yes. Is that happening? It sounds awesome in theory. Are we moving in that direction? Do we, do we see this happening or is it too early to tell? Yes. In, uh, in the, uh, some of the projects, we can guide people with the orphan disease. And we have that questionnaire. After we suggest a disease, and the user's answer to that suggestion is really correct, we can guide the people to the appropriate medication with such a suggestion. And we also suggest a disease to the doctors, and sometimes they are not specialized over disease. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you've mentioned you're working more and more with pharma companies recently. Is the pharma mostly interested in these type of orphan diseases and better understanding the, the size of the market? Or do they have other interests in working with UB? Major part is that orphan disease and the specialty disease. It's not a primary care disease. Also, in terms of clinical trials, it's difficult for the pharmaceutical companies to gather the patient with the rare disease. So we can efficiently find their such a patient and suggest their patient to having their such a clinical trials. Okay. So now, especially with the new investment, UB is, is going global. Mm -hmm. What are your primary markets outside of Japan? Our first priority is the U.S. I know you guys have been sort of planning an overseas expansion since day one, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and that's great. I wish more Japanese founders had that ambition from day one, from day zero. But healthcare is such a heavily regulated industry yes. everywhere. So how does that affect your market entry strategies? Actually, it's very hard. We have to research a lot about the regulatories. But actually, in terms of the healthcare industry, the U.S. has their own regulations. Oh, the HIPAA, right? Yeah, HIPAA, yeah, it's very strict. But fortunately, there have been a symptom checker. So it's defined. But for the Japanese market, we are the pioneer. So we have to make the rule 
yeah, from scratch here, and we have to have the lobbying with the government. But in the U.S., there is a rule, so we have to align. So I guess it makes it easier because at least the rules are defined. Mm, yes, yes. But when you go to, let's say, the next market would be the EU, or would you be sort of reinventing that? From scratch again, or is it the same service? You just have to comply with certain data storage requirements. Is it how, how big of a difference is there from market to market? The biggest point of the business model is the pharmaceutical marketing. So in the U.S., pharmaceutical companies can advertise their their drug. It's a very unique point. In Japan, it's illegal to advertise their prescribed drug. That's a good point. Yeah, the U.S. market. I think I don't know if it's the only one in the world, but it is unusual that yes, that yes. pharma companies can advertise directly to consumers. Yeah, there are only two two markets: the uh, U.S. and the New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not sure why <laughs> why New Zealand. Is. Okay, so I, that's interesting. So the biggest differences are not regulations or data storage. It's just Market structure and competition and yes, yes, value proposition. Yes, yes, and the, our business model depends on the pharmaceutical companies, but our competitors do the monetization with insurance company insurance. So the business model are different, and our competitive point is digital suggestion accuracy. So we invest a lot of money to develop high accuracy digital suggestions, and we can also acquire training data. Uh, in their clinical field, it's also a unique point. You know, getting back to that that question of regulation in Japan, in particular, well, everywhere really, but in Japan, like healthcare is such a heavily regulated market. In a lot of ways, there's only one buyer, right? The the national health insurance. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, yes. <laughs> in what ways does that make innovation hard? In what ways does that make innovation easier? I think the good point and the also difficult point. So, what are some of the the good points? Good point is it's a very simple. In the U.S. or other markets, insurance companies pay for the cost of their medication, but in Japan, government pay for that. Actually, the government moving is very slow. So it's very difficult for the startups to 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 seeing the monetization point to government. So some of the startup make devices of the like AI or software devices, but the another way is the pharmaceutical companies because the Japanese market has a big pharmaceutical market needs. Monetization point is pharmaceutical companies sales and marketing. It's a uh, one of the unique points of the Japanese market. So the pharmaceutical companies become a good monetization point. I, that makes sense. They're constrained by regulation. They they have the money to invest, but yeah, it, it's just health tech in Japan for the future of Japan. It's just so important. I mean, everything from telemedicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the pharmaceuticals are a big part of it. Technology like UB, which allows individual doctors to mm-hmm. make a bigger impact. It, it's so important. What what should what should Japan be doing to encourage more? Health tech innovation. Uh, actually, Japanese such a traditional power is a uh, really complicated. In terms of the telemedicine, so very slowly penetrated in Japan. I think very old, old in industry. 
problems are obvious, but the uh, uniqueness of the Japanese market is that pharmaceutical companies pay a lot. Cost of medication very high and increasing. And uh, there are a lot of problems like a wholesale of the drugs. And also the government efforts are flexible uh, doing the UV's business. So they are very negotiable and researching their overseas. Yeah, they've set up recently set up the sandbox. Mm. The uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sandbox to allow startups to experiment a little bit, but like safely under close supervision. Mm, yes, yes. So, I mean, things seem to be headed in the right direction.、Mm-hmm. Before diving into the, this industry, it seems to be very hard to enter the market. But industry people also have a lot of concern and they want to solve the problem. And they are now thinking they're、uh, such a growing industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the amazing thing. Like, literally everyone I talk to, from VCs to founders to government bureaucrats to politicians, everyone wants more med tech startups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, not only for the medical doctors. Can start uh, uh, this industry's business. I think we can learn. Yeah, of course, we need the support of the medical professionals, but it's easier than expected. <laughs> I, I <think> . Really? <laughs> Simpler than expected. That's、yes. good to hear. Yeah, just removes such an image of such difficulties. That's refreshing to hear. If the biggest problem is the image, that it just sounds scary,、mm-hmm. that's、mm-hmm. a solvable problem.、Mm. <laughs> Hey, listen, Kota, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan,、mm. anything at all the education system, the way people think about risk, regulations, I mean, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? <laughs> Interesting.、Uh, I want to change the younger people's language to the English. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Why is that? Why would you want to change that so everyone's speaking English? So we lack the、uh, example of the successful、uh, startups. I love to、uh, read the book. Overseas startups are successful cases. Would being able to speak and read English, is it, it just gives. It would give young people more access to information about startups and, yes. and yes. let them hear more stories, success stories. Yes, and actually, the scale is totally different between the Japanese startups. The variation of their IPO is totally different than the, the Japanese startup from the IPO to early. And I think it's not a good effect for the growing their, their companies. And the Japanese also expect such an early、uh, exit in terms of the SaaS. Their ARR level is totally different. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially traditionally in Japan. But I don't know, do you see that changing? I'm seeing more and more founders, and, and I mean, Yumi, for example, that are turning down a nice, safe IPO and trying to do global growth. I mean, do, is this something you see changing? Yes, yes, I feel about the variation. There are more unicorns, and the, I think there are a good example of a, a smart HR or a private network. So I think their environment b e c o m e better. 
Also, times of the global startups, the number of the startup founders started business in the U.S. or the other entity in the U.S. from right, right, like Treasure Data did. Yeah, yeah, Treasure Data, yeah. Well, you know, with with more and more successful Japanese role models, maybe even if the young founders don't speak English, they'll have enough Japanese inspiration <laughs>、yes. to help them succeed. Yes. <laughs> um. Hey, well, listen, Kota. Thanks so much for sitting down with me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a very interesting time for me. <laughs> And we're back. I love Yubi's approach to UI/UX testing and design, and it really highlights the importance of listening to your users, not your customers. Hospitals, like any enterprise buyer. Want interfaces that mirror their understanding of the data, an interface that reflects their current forms and processes. And since they're the ones paying the bills, that's exactly what most designers give them. And and frankly, this is why most enterprise software provides a terrible user experience. It's always simpler and safer to give the customer what they want. Rather than to try to tell the customer that they want the wrong thing, Koto and his team went back to basics, talking with potential users in the park and getting feedback. You know, looking back, I suppose we should not be surprised that the final UI mirrored interfaces that the users already understood: ATM machines, karaoke machines. And it's a wonderful example of UI design done right. As for AI applications to symptom checking and diagnosis support, well, that has both a very interesting future and a very interesting past. In fact, one of the first practical uses for AI in the '70s and the '80s was Caduceus. And similar expert systems designed to diagnose diseases or assist doctors in their diagnosis. It never quite lived up to its promise, and and even with all the advances in AI and medicine over the past fifty years, I'm not sure this generation will do much better. Medicine is science to be sure, but it's not algorithmic or or even deterministic. In many cases, even with the best information and the best minds, diagnosis and treatment involves a series of informed guesses and and try and see approaches to treatment. And and to be clear, most doctors and medical startups don't pretend that reality is any other way. But we, the public, you know, we we tend to get our hopes up. But Yubi's approach, in particular. Adds a lot of value. Rather than just jumping to the final answer, they take one important direct step forward. They use AI to determine the appropriate follow-up questions. It saves time and leads to better results. That's a valuable lesson for all of us in the startup world. Sometimes we need to put the quest for the answer aside for a moment, and make absolutely sure. That we're asking the right questions. If you want to talk more about medical AI systems or managing staff without managers, 
Kota and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show196 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you enjoy the show, share a link online or just, you know, tell people about it. In this age of over-the-top hype and reviews as a service, you'd be amazed how much power an honest recommendation has. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.